At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. I want to welcome you. It is time for Political Breakfast again uh, right here on WABE. I'm Lisa Ram. Brian Robinson is here. And in for Theron Johnson this week is Saba Long. Saba, thanks for being here. Great to see you. Good to see you again, Lisa. Glad to be back. Great to see you too, Brian. Well, thank you. And it's great to have Saba here. Uh, ever since we had Saba on, and I went on and on about how much I love her. She's the best Democrat <laughs> I know. She's my favorite Democrat. Theron has just been much nicer to me <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> much nicer. Yeah, your best friend. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He referenced it several times on the show last week that he was, you know, he wasn't going to do the stuff he knows I don't like. <laughs> He's kinder and gentler. <laughs> but he makes, oh. me the per- he makes me the personification of everything he hates about the Republican Party. <laughs> Brian, I would never do that. <laughs> well, that's Theron. No, you That's don't. There. You don't. That's yeah. why you're my favorite. <laughs> yeah. Well, how are you both feeling about uh, the uh, beloved tradition of uh, Music Midtown getting axed this year? And and not due to COVID, not due to COVID. That's the newsflash there, but uh, likely because of Georgia's new gun law. Brian, I'll begin with you. What, what are your thoughts on that? You know, the stories that we read this week about it as news began to percolate out is that this was based on the 2014 law, not the constitutional carry law that passed it last year. According to the AJC, the 2014 law, and I was in Governor Deal's office at the time that that happened, so I did all the communications around passage of that bill that Democrats termed the guns everywhere bill, and that did kind of become what people knew it as. So we're not talking about something that's new here. This has been on the books for eight years. And Democrats are using the moment to blame Brian Kemp for this and his extreme gun agenda, quote unquote. Well, this wasn't even Brian Kemp's bill. This wasn't something he signed into law. The 2014 bill allowed for uh, the carry with, uh, with, with permit on public lands for events. And I think what brought this about was gun rights activists were threatening to sue in order to make sure you could take a um, – a gun or a weapon onto the grounds with you. And that that caused all this. But let's not forget that we've had this law for eight years. We have not had an incident. I always hate to say all of these mass shootings are happening around the country, but it's not happening here because I feel like that's a knock on wood moment. And uh, I don't know that any part of this country is immune to gun violence, but I would close with this. There probably weren't guns allowed that day in Las Vegas at that open-air concert where the murderer broke out the window of a hotel room and mowed down scores of concert goers in Las Vegas. So the, you know, the idea that, uh, that people being armed, who, people who have permits being armed is a danger, I don't know really holds water given what we've seen happen around the country. 
Brian, thanks for clarifying that because it's the 2014 law, but the 20, the new law is also entering into the conversation. Uh, the 2014 law basically says guns can be permitted in public places, including parks. Um, and the festival's policy prohibits firearms at the event held in Atlanta's Piedmont Park. Um, but it is sparking a lot of outrage and, and a lot of discussion, Asaba, about a constitutional carry and how that could factor into a lot of this. And a lot of people are, are disappointed. Um, what were your thoughts when you initially heard this? And um, particularly, what kind of political talk this could generate? Yeah. So my first thought, I live near Piedmont Park. So I was like, oh, well, I guess that will be a quiet weekend. <laughs> but we're, we're <laughs> very quiet yeah. weekend. So, so no, you're supportive. No, you're supportive no. of constitutional but, carry. I mean, really, this is a matter of common sense. I don't see why you need firearms when there's a packed crowd. Folks are drinking, probably doing drugs, hanging out, having a good time. I don't see why anyone would need a firearm. Uh, and then to Brian's point, the Los Angeles shooting, if someone in the crowd had ha had a firearm, what were they going to do? Find out which window in the hotel the person is shooting from and then aim up and shoot? Like, that's just not realistic. Uh, the last thing I would say about this is around constitutional carry, about around who should be able to have a firearm in public Really, there's only one class of people that I would want to have a firearm in public, and that's police. And I imagine that if you privately talk to, because I have done this, if you privately talk to law enforcement folks, they're not at all comfortable and happy with the constitutional carry bill, because it just makes their life that, more, that much more difficult. And so at the end of the day, you know, I, what I would like to see as a private citizen, in air quotes, Brian, is common sense gun laws. That's all I think the, the average person wants is what is the common sense approach to this? And guns in a festival is not common sense. You know, going back to 2014, and I'm actually uh, more fluent in that than I am in the constitutional carry issue because I was in the governor's office at the time and I was the one answering all of the questions about it. And that bill got a lot of national interest at a time when Georgia's governor's office didn't have a lot of national interest the way that it does today. But the rhetoric around the bill has been the same as other expansions of Second Amendment rights in Georgia, that this was going to lead to mass murder. Uh, but you know, that bill in 2014 allowed for permitted carry in churches, in bars, in uh, you know, places that are a little uh, sensitive like that. Now, churches did have the option to opt out of that if they, if they so chose. But nothing happened. And then we had campus carry several years later, and the Democratic rhetoric was, we'll have a bloodbath on campuses, and we haven't. And so at some juncture, the rhetoric has to meet up with the reality. We have expanded gun rights in Georgia, and we haven't had the problems that we've seen in other states, including states with much stricter gun laws like New York and Illinois. But the reality also is that if you ask the average person, and what happens is legislators who are able to pass laws without worry of anyone coming in there with a gun, because guns are prohibited in the Capitol, now they're able to do that. But I have to worry about, is the person next to me sane, right? Number one, they have a weapon, but are they sane? And again, this comes down to common sense. I fundamentally believe in the Second Amendment. I think you should be able to carry and, and have a weapon. 
But I also want to make sure that you are of sound mind when you do that. I also want to make sure that you know how to use that weapon appropriately and correctly. And, and those are the types of things that are missing in this conversation that, again, is about common sense. Yeah, a lot of people saying amen to that, uh, Saba. And then in terms of rhetoric, uh, Brian, as you mentioned, which way does it turn now? And you you mentioned the Democrats spinning in a certain way early on. And, and Saba, what are your thoughts on that? Will the Democrats spin this in a certain way during this election se- uh, season? And will the GOP in some way? I think they should. Um, you know, this is music Midtown alone is a loss of $50 million of revenue to the city. Right. So if I'm the mayor, if I'm city council, I'm pretty doggone pissed off about that. Um, and then the question is, what happens to one music festival that's in October? What happens to Shaky Knees? All these other very popular music festivals that people come from all over the southeast to come to Atlanta and hang out and have fun. Are, the, are we at jeopardy of losing those as well? Right. And so just like Republicans, you know, raised a lot of stink about losing um, the baseball game, the all-star game, I'd imagine Democrats should be doing the same for this. This is a tricky situation, no doubt about it. I will say this, though. If a person intent on a mass shooting goes in there knowing that a significant or at least a good number of people in there are also holding, they're also have a weapon. It does make you think through, do I really want to do this? Uh, Because I can get taken out quickly. I won't achieve my my murderous purpose. And and I don't know, because some of the people are insane. I think if you're intent on a mass shooting, to me, you almost by definition are insane. I I would assume I'm not a doctor, but that's how I see it. Uh, But if there's any rational thought, they got to be thinking, somebody's going to get me because there's some armed folks around here. Or the other side of that is maybe you just opt not to go to these kinds of events because you don't know what's going to end up happening, right? I talked to a friend who is um, going to be a vendor at one of these music festivals, and she was she said, I- I'm not sure if I actually want to be a vendor because I don't know if I really want to take on that risk. Something might happen, and then, you know, God forbid, you know, I'm I'm injured or killed or worse, you know, that this becomes a mass catastrophe. But, you know, think about this. I, I, I don't, this isn't my favorite topic as listeners of Political Breakfast know. But if you think about where the most horrific mass shootings have taken place, it is in gun-free zones, largely. Schools. You know, nothing is as horrifying, as gut-wrenching, as sleep loss-inducing as Sandy Hook was for me. Uh, that Columbine, that the Parkland shooting was. Those things haunt my dreams. And those students, and and more recently in Uvalde, Texas, were sitting ducks. And I'm not saying we we arm students. I'm not pretending that I have an answer to what I think is one of the greatest scourges of American culture. But I don't know that having armed people who are permitted or who have gone through some sort of training course— who aren't insane is but that's the worst the issue, thing. Brian. We don't know. We we don't we don't. But it know is the issue. It is. I, no, don't. I agree. I don't have I don't have an easy answer. And that's the problem. Is let's be let's all be pro Second Amendment, but let's also be honest and practical and responsible about it. And I don't know how you do that because, like I said, where this happens and it's the worst is in gun free zones. 
you know? And so what do you want to do? I don't know why they're in here. The sign clearly says no guns. I, I mean, I don't know what happened. I mean, we everything was properly signaged here. Uh, and I'm not being flippant. That sounds flippant. But, you know, what I'm saying is, is, is still true. Feels like a huge blow uh, to the economy, losing a, a big festival like this. Should that be a part of the conversation? Should that be more of the conversation? Should more of the, the, the emphasis beyond that, the, the blow that, that this could possibly have to Atlanta's economy? Sava? Yeah, yeah, it's to that. It's to the culture. I mean, Atlanta is a huge music town, right? And we've got a number of major artists that call Atlanta home. We've got these big festivals that folks come to, again, from across the Southeast and maybe even further. And we like to talk in our city about Atlanta influences everything. And here we are losing some of the big pieces that make Atlanta what it is, right? Music festivals is a key part of that. It's a part of our city culture. And again, the question is, what are the ramifications, right? And does the mayor, do other people come out and say, this is a problem and maybe go have a private conversation with the governor and say, hey, what can we do here? Because we are losing out on tourists. We're losing out on revenue. We're losing out on small businesses being able to rely on these special events that they no longer will be able to receive money from. And I'll answer your question, Lisa, by saying I am very much influenced as a voter and as a thinker by economic development considerations. I am uh, still outraged that Abrams played a role in losing the Major League Baseball All-Star game on false premises. We have proven over time that what they were saying about that law wasn't true. We've had record turnout, particularly among the demographic groups that were allegedly being suppressed by that law. And we were hurt by it. And I, and, and that, that message appeals to me, that losing economic development, losing economic impact matters to me and it makes me angry. I will say this, we are a pragmatic people here in Georgia, and we are a pro-business people, and it is my hunch that there will be some room, Saba, that the mayor and the governor and the speaker get in, and we figure out a way forward. We figure out a way to address the concerns of these concert producers, the artists, the fans, and align it with state law, which is very pro-Second Amendment, strong Second Amendment rights. There's there's some way we can fix this. I don't know what it is. I'm not at that table, but I predict something will move forward on that. It's, it will be good politics for Brian Kemp, even if he's able to do it in a way that is not seen as circumventing the rights guaranteed in our new law. Well, Brian said her name, Stacey Abrams. And, and Brian, as you know, we haven't talked about her much these uh, these past few weeks. Saba, I'm glad you're here today. So uh, maybe you can give us an account of, of what women are feeling about Stacey Abrams and her run for governor, among other things, when we return. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Welcome back to Political Breakfast. Brian's here and in for Theron today is Saba Long. Glad to have her here uh, to talk about Stacey Abrams. Brian, we haven't talked about her in a couple of, of weeks, have we? And, and not in great detail. Well, no, we just had a lot going on around here. We've had we've had no shortage <laughs> of topics. And, and plus, there's just been no big news about her that's that's been of note other than the dribbling out of polls that are consistently showing Brian Kemp with a five to seven point lead. And where we are in the election cycle, we are getting close to crunch time. We're getting close to that Labor Day uh, milestone where historically campaign season really kicks into high gear. But this isn't a traditional cycle. Stacey Abrams is one of the best funded gubernatorial candidates in the country. The spigots keep pouring. She's already spent more than $20 million, more so, more than rather, what Brian Kemp has spent. And he maintains a lead. And these are known characters. People aren't open too much to persuasion or being educated about someone because they've already made up their minds about these two candidates. And for Stacey to have outspent Brian, to be a 100% name ID candidate, someone with national standing, someone who's the president of United Earth on Star Trek, to have done all of that and still be five to seven points behind is a terrible place for her to be. You really wonder, like, what is going to break her out of it? Is it Music Midtown? Nope. Sorry. That ain't going to do it. Circle back, Saba. You know, he referenced, Brian referenced some of the polling. And, um, you know, I just found it interesting that she's not polling very well with women in general and specifically with with that all-important voting block that, that really could uh, help her, and that's African-American women. W- what's happening here? Why isn't she resonating with women like she should? So a couple things. One, it's generally hard for women candidates, period. I mean, case in point, Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton did not do as well with women as she should have. Um, and then for Stacey, she is an she's an African-American woman, but she still is not polling at the levels that she should as a black woman. And that's the case for her polling with black men and her polling with black women. So a couple things. Um, one, I think part of this, she still has time to make this up, but I think part of the issue is that it, to me, it does not appear that she's running a retail politics campaign right, where she's pounding the pavement, calling elected officials. You know, I I know, I can name at least, and I won't give their names, but I can name at least five prominent Black men and women elected officials in the metro area who have not received nary a call from the candidate. And and that is just remarkable. Um, And so if you have Black elected officials who are effectively on the sidelines because the candidate is not reaching out to them and saying, hey, get in the game and help me win this election, then that is part of the reason why you're seeing the type of polling uh, that we have so far. Now, I will say one thing, Brian, you mentioned how much money she has raised. One, I mean, you know this, our readers, our, our listeners might know this. It is incredibly hard to beat an incumbent. And so one way you beat them, or two, one is an incredibly strong message, and the other is you fundraise like hell. And she's, she's got point two down. She is fundraising, and she said in the campaign memo that basically 
you know, they need to outraise Brian Kemp at every stage of the game. And so that's the campaign itself. That's the leadership committee. That's PACs that might come in and support the candidate. Um, but where she's missing is the message. And she's got to figure out how to turn that around and when to turn that around. Uh, but time is ticking. The key message, though, we we thought she was touching on the key me- affordable housing, uh, Medicare is is she completely wrong and, and, and out of touch? No, she's not. She's not wrong and out of touch. But there's no consistent theme, one. Mm. And then two, the average voter is looking at the election saying, well, to Kemp's credit, Georgia's economy is doing well. You know, things might be inflation is, is not great, but generally I feel OK. And what Stacy has to do a better job of is letting them know Maybe you feel okay, but here's where you really should be, right? We really should have affordable health care across rural Georgia, and we don't have that. We should have teachers, you know, schools not having this deficit of teachers as classes start. And you just tick down, here are all the things that Kemp has done wrong that you might not realize is impacting your life, but it is. And that she has not, there has not been a breakthrough message um, and I, again, it's, it's a problem and her ads, it's another thing, like the breakthrough message isn't clear in her ads as well. I would say maybe hire Warnock's team on the ads. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a great suggestion. Yeah. They, they know how to, boy, they know how to land one. And, and, and that's the issue. Mm. Well, they're trying that with Stacey, though, like the dancing in the kitchen with her niece and cooking for her parents, all that sort of stuff. And I'm a small business person, and here's my uh, white, middle-aged, suburban-looking um, uh, woman that I'm a business partner with, you know. Cause that's, who's a Republican. Who's a Republican, right. I mean, that's, that's you, can, you can see all the machinations and strategies that are going into those decisions. Here's the problem, is that a re-election of a governor— where people know who the incumbent is because the, ing- the governor of, of the state is in your face, much more so than other elected officials, much more so than our U.S. senators are. And what they do impacts our lives very much. It's a referendum on the incumbent, a re-election of the governor. And the people of Georgia, or at least enough, 50 plus one, think Kemp's done a pretty good job. They think our economy is better than the rest of the country. We keep hearing about recession, but people here are like, I don't feel like we're in recession. My groceries are more expensive. My gas is more expensive, but I've gotten the raise. I could go to another job if I wanted to. You know, things don't feel terrible in Georgia, even though inflation is real and it's real, you know, hurting people. They're not blaming Brian Kemp for it. They're blaming Joe Biden for it. So it's not hurting Kemp. It's helping Kemp but to draw that contrast. So Stacey's got to make the argument that things aren't good in Georgia. Hence, gaffes like, this is the worst place in America to live. Because she needs people to believe that's true to have a chance. And they don't. And that's her problem. They don't. And then there's this other intangible going in Brian Kemp's favor. Some of this is just environmental. Some of it's not anything Brian Kemp has or hasn't done. But there is something he did do that makes a tremendous amount of difference. In Georgia, it is the independents, swing voters who decide elections. We are divided fairly equally when it comes to hard partisans. And those people who can switch back and forth, they decided in 2020 to go with Biden, Ossoff, and Warnock. And all of those guys won our state. 
in 2022, those same people are going, Brian Kemp, Brad Raffensperger, Chris Carr, when democracy was on the line, when they had every political incentive to obey President Trump, stood in the breach, did the right thing, even if it blew their own careers up. They acted morally. They acted courageously. And yeah, they may be more conservative than I am on a host of issues, but I trust these people. They are principled. They are good. And I want them to stay in office. And so I think the the question for Democrats is, do you reward people for doing what they should do, period? Right? Brian Kemp, Raffensperger, that's, that's, it's not, there's not like an extra thing they did. They did what you would expect any elected official in that position to do. And so is it a pro- But we saw a lot not do it. Yeah, and, and, that's, and that's a problem. But do you reward people for doing what they should do or do you reward them for going above and beyond? And, and you know, so at the end of the day, for, for Stacey in particular, I think the question is, yes, making this an election on Brian Kemp but if you can't win on the economy, which I don't think that's going to be a necessarily strong point for her, the question is, how am I making clear that Brian Kemp is not improving your life in a way that you think he is, right? And making that distinction. And then the other thing is judges. This is something that Democrats seem to continue to forget. The governor this has happened under at least the last three governors. The governor has appointed a number of judges. These are judges that decided to not seek re-election, and they, were, they did that in a period of time, which would mean the governor can appoint the judge. This is, again, this has happened continually over the last couple of years, and it would be you know, appropriate for Stacey and other Democrats to say, here's another reason why you need a Democrat to be the governor and not a Republican. Because I'm going to appoint judges that align with my view of the Constitution and not a Republican view of the Constitution. So there are ways that she can put in in her messaging things that resonate with Democratic voters. But again, right now, she's got a ways to go. I do disagree with the judges thing because it's different than the federal judges. They're not ruling on ideological issues. It's much more pragmatic stuff. Yes, they are conservative Republicans. And yes, the new norm in Georgia is for judges to retire before the end of their terms and allow the governor to appoint someone. That is how it is done. It's not just a number. It is basically all of them <laughs> today. You know, Almost everybody in the Supreme Court, the appeals court, was appointed by, by Deal or, or Kemp at this juncture. So, and a, and a few even by Purdue. But I don't think that it's a really hard, complicated argument to get in. And there are a couple of issues, I believe, as we discussed here, where Democrats have a polling advantage in Georgia. Medicaid expansion is one. Uh, constitutional carry is one. For sure. And, and I would, they, and probably the abortion issue. Those, those three, those are all important. Those are all important. And Democrats have an advantage, and that's why you're going to hear them talk about those issues a lot. But those aren't the issues that we're seeing in polling that are moving the needle with voters right now. It is driven by crime and the economy, and that is a net positive by a long shot to the Republicans. That's why we keep seeing video of Stacey Abrams going, yes, we have to divert re- resources, so yeah, defund police. Uh, you know, that- Stacey did not say defund the police. The question was, are you for defunding the police? You go, yes, we have to, we have to divert resources, so yes. So something to that effect, 
She didn't use the phrase, but she was responding to it. And it's effective. And it's effective. And look, we're seeing in Georgia what we're seeing in other parts of the country. Even in the most liberal elements of the country, San Francisco, they are recalling DAs who won't prosecute crime because it has created chaos and poor quality of life for the residents. And we're seeing some in Georgia who've adopted that approach. And yeah, but Brian, I think most Democrats in Georgia do not agree with the quote unquote defund the police method of thinking. No, I, I don't I, think they do either. You, where, I don't think they do either. Yeah. Now, now people want things like a uh, pad, right? Where you call and there's a police alternative diversion. So that's if someone is mentally ill, for example, maybe they're talking with uh, an officer who's trained on that or even a, a medical professional instead of an officer. So there, there are, there's a, you know, this is one of those things that I was always frustrated by the, by Democrats and adopting that phrase uh, because it's toxic. Um, and again, this is an area where Stacey can actually lead because there are a number of black electeds in the metro area who have, you know, law enforcement backgrounds that she hasn't reached out to that who would be right there with her to say, hey, here's where we stand on constitutional carry. Here's where we stand you know, on these other issues that folks care about, like like, like public safety. Yeah. Those black law enforcement guys were probably, probably all fired by Keisha at some point for doing their jobs. So yeah, to see where they might be a little angry. <laughs> Quickly, mo- moving to the, the Secretary of State's race, how, how weighty is a Stacey Abrams endorsement at this point? You have B. Wynn trailing in the polls behind Raffensperger. And and a lot of people thought going into this race that uh, her endorsement, Stacey Abrams' endorsement, would, would do B. Wynn a lot of good. What what are your thoughts there, uh, Saba? No, you know, Stacey endorsed her in the primary. Um, she was one of, I think, three candidates, statewide candidates, that uh, was endorsed by Stacey. I don't think a Stacey endorsement matters much in the general. Um, if I were B, I'd be going after other, you know, community leaders and elected officials for their endorsements, uh, in part because there's a lot of mixed feelings about um, Stacey Abrams. And so if you have other validators who are saying, you know, across the spectrum, across the state saying, I'm with B because of X, Y, Z, then that I think is much more powerful than um, a Stacey endorsement. And the, the question for B, kind of like Stacey, is what is your breakthrough message? Because if it's solely about uh, elections, you're going to lose, right? And so she needs to make figure out what her message is uh, beyond solely the election itself. Brian, any thoughts there? Well, the, the endorsement of Stacey Abrams and the general means absolutely nothing. Now, it was probably a huge help in the primary. And I don't mean that to diminish the campaigns of those she endorsed, Charlie Bailey and B. Wynn being the the two we hear the most about. The general, you got to stand on your own. And I would not be offended at all if Christopher, our producer, wanted to go and find the the clip when we had B. Win on the show back during the runoff. And I said, B, now that Brad Raffensperger has won, which you got in this race thinking he didn't have a chance. You got in this race thinking you would be going up against Jody Heiss, who was an election denier and someone who voted against the Electoral College votes. And you knew that the middle in Georgia, those independents I was just talking about, had rejected that message. Well, surprise, the guy who became a national hero is now the nominee. 
And is the nomination worthless today because of that? And of course, she can't say yes. I mean, I understand that would have been a bad move. But she just went on to make the argument, Saba, that Brad Rappersberger is no moderate. And she said what you said. He shouldn't be rewarded just for following the law. That shouldn't be uh, all that important of a bar to have gone over. I disagree. I think Brad Raffensperger took courageous action at a moment where he was undergoing death threats. His wife was being threatened. His family was being threatened. He had 24 hours a day security. And he went out there and spoke to the Georgia people every day and did the right thing. Never lost his cool. And it was an important moment in American history. Yeah, I don't and deny that. he was on that. the right side of it, even though he had incentives to not be. And so I don't, I mean, and so we learned this week or last week that Brad's up 14 points, which is in Georgia, an impossible landslide. I mean, just a generic ballot race, you know, you know, some unknown Democrat versus some unknown Republican is going to be really, really close. This is people who probably don't like a lot of his politics going, I'm with that guy. And they don't know who B. Wynn is yet. She does have a chance to communicate with them. She does have a chance to provide an alternative, but it's not going to be enough. That race is over. And I think it's going to be very difficult for B. Wynn to raise the money she needs to communicate with voters because people saw that poll and they know that number's probably not going to move. So why throw good money after bad when we have other opportunities, like in the Senate race, which, as we've seen, is the most competitive race on the ballot, money's going to start going toward those competitive races, making it really hard for B to make her case. And, you know, I think B's going to have a hard time making the argument that Raffensperger's not moderate when B's not a moderate. Right? She's just not. You listen to her talk, she's very liberal. Right? And so she can't, she can't say, I'm the one filling this middle space. She could do that with Jody Heiss. So I think there's still space for B, and I say space for for her to help the Democratic ticket, right? And so if I'm Abrams, I'm at this point, you know, if it seems like we can't make up the deficit, okay, how do I use this candidate who's on the statewide ticket to support, to just raise everyone else up, right? And so how do we make sure we make inroads in areas where we know B would perform well? And and that's something, you know, putting on my Democratic consulting hat, that's what I would be doing if I were them. All right. Uh, Herschel Walker, Herschel Walker, Herschel Walker. We talk about him almost every All the time. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) He doesn't need the help with name ID, but we do our part. (laughs) Well, before we get out of here, I'm going to let you lead into this, Brian, because this this really piqued your interest. Uh, You know, something that happened with MSNBC that... that, um, let me see if I can call it up here. One headline reads, Herschel Walker says he will pray for MSNBC and guest who called me the N-word. Now, I'm going to let you take it from there because no, like no, 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 the no, rhetoric no, no. gets really touchy. Yeah. And it gets really touchy when it comes to Herschel Walker for many reasons. That's true. If you would, please, Lisa, uh, given that I am the white guy on this panel here, <laughs> I'm the, the white person here. <laughs> I would feel better given cancel culture rules if you read the quote from the guy on MSNBC so that I am not on audio saying these words. Okay, I will. Okay, I will. Here here it is. And cuz cuz Herschel Walker refers to the N-word and a lot of people think that's, you know, uh as bad as it can get and 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 that's pretty bad. And and this one uh is is also not very appealing, but here's what the quote says. Herschel Walker 
will do what he's told. And that's what Republicans want from their, T-H-E-I-R, their Negroes, unquote. Yes. And now now our listeners can see why I wanted you to read it uh, so that my voice isn't clipped saying those, those words, which are horribly offensive, inexcusable to use them. And it plays right into Herschel Walker's hands. It was a great day for Herschel Walker if he is able to go out to a broad audience in Georgia and say, I am being attacked on racist grounds by the left. And there is this view amongst some on the left. And, and both of the people on this MSNBC show, NBC show who we're talking are both uh, black people. I think it's probably of, of note and, of, and pertinent in this case. But if the idea is, if you are black, you can only think a certain way, that you have got to align with the Democrats on every issue. If you speak out and have something else to say, then you are basically being controlled by Republicans, by which is code for white people. That's highly offensive, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and and I don't it, think it works. I I think that I think there's a huge black audience out there that is offended by it, and white people get mad too because they're like. This is another example of how the left says things and and moves along. And if Republicans said anything remotely like it, they would be destroyed by it. Well, it's a mentality that dates back to slavery for me. And and I don't think it warrants anything else. Saba, what do you think? Oh, goodness. Where to start? <laughs> um, you know, Herschel <laughs> is a candidate who has to win white voters at the end of the day, because he's in the Republican general. He, he's, it's an election that he has to win white voters. Um, but I, I will say this, what's interesting to me is what's happening nationally with the Republican Party. This election 2022 is the most black um, Republicans who have ever been uh, nominated for elected office. And that's of interest. But I will say there have been more black Democrats in each Congress since 71, if I'm not mistaken, than the entire number of black Republicans for the last 100 years. And so I think the party, Republican Party, has a lot of work to do around attracting black talent uh, to run for elected office, attracting black voters. Um, I mean, frankly, I can, I personally know probably a dozen black people who would be inclined to vote Republican if they didn't feel that the party in totality, Brian, not, not, in, not individuals, but the party in general uh, was not a, a party that was accepting of black people. And so, you know, maybe Herschel changes that for the party. I don't know. Uh, but based on what he's kind of done and said so far, mate, I, I don't know if that will happen. Uh, but, but I will say, you know, it's an interesting matchup. You know, at the end of the day, Herschel versus Warnock, you couldn't pick two black folks who are so different from each other, even though they may have had uh, similar lived experiences. Well, hopefully that, that debate will happen. Oh, yeah, something will happen. And I, I do think what Saba is saying is worth noting because it's interesting how little we talk about it, given historical significance. There are two massive nationally watched races happening here for governor and for U.S. Senate. Three of the four candidates are black. I mean, where else in the country is that happening? And it's happening here, and we don't even talk about it because it's become the norm. 
it's, it's not extraordinary at this juncture. And uh, so you're going to have a lot of white voters voting for black candidates this fall, whether Democrat or Republican. And like Saba said, we saw a increase in the number of black Republican candidates on the ballot this year. Kelvin King ran for U.S. Senate. He's a really good guy. He is a great messenger. Didn't have the resources he needed to make a splash uh, against somebody like Herschel Walker. But that is emerging. And what we're seeing with Stacey Abrams that that Lisa began with today, recent polling shows her at 80% with black voters in Georgia. Now, some of that she's going to get back, right? So some of this margin that she's lacking, she's going to get back from those black voters who will, you know, come back toward their partisan home by the uh, by the beginning of November. But some of them are just lost. Some of them are going to the Republicans. Trump did fairly well with black men. I think Kemp's going to do fairly well with black men, and Kemp's going to do extraordinarily well with Hispanics, much better than he did four years ago. And that's a problem for the Democrats. Well, let's end on the note again. The N-word of any kind is not good, is it? No. And uh, thanks for the, the deep conversation today. Uh, Saba Long is the executive director, Atlanta Civic Circle. She has managed and led digital and traditional communications and strategy for political campaigns, transit ballot referendum, and public and private sector projects across the metro Atlanta region. Brian Robinson is a Republican strategist, communications consultant, and former deputy chief of staff for Governor Nathan Deal. Thank you both for being here. Saba, always good to see you. Great to see you. Thanks, guys. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen at wabe.org or wherever you find your podcasts. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.